1: To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest.
2: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Tom Bodden. He's a professor of neuroscience at University of Sussex over in England. We're going to talk about uh, his research. So, Tom, thanks for coming. Pleasure to be here. Tell me, what are you researching?
3: So, I'm what we call a systems neuroscientist. So, neuroscientists, of course researching the brain, researching the nervous system. And by systems, what we mean is we're interested in how elements of the nervous systems interact at the level of individual nerve cells, at the level of synapses. So this is sort of the, the biological counterpart to what you might consider to be an electronic engineer, right? When you're putting together circuits in an electronic sense. So in systems neuroscience, what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand the brain in that sort of computational sense. So we're trying to understand how neurons talk to each other, why they talk to each other in the ways that they do, and what are the computations that they achieve in that way.
2: Well, I guess the brain has many, many different areas of, of neuronal activity. Do you focus on certain areas or what parts of the brain do you look at?
3: Absolutely. So from a from a research perspective, we in particular focus on, on the sense of vision in vertebrates. And even more particularly, we look at the retina. So the bit of the nervous system that's actually inside the eyeball. Which comprises of actually quite a complex network of neurons. So, this makes it a a very nice area to study the kind of questions that we're interested in. So, how neurons talk to each other, what they compute. And that's because it is a network with a very clearly defined purpose, right? You've got an input, the input is light. It hits the photoreceptors, those are special types of nerve cells, special types of neurons that sit on one layer of the retina. And then those talk to several other layers of neurons inside that network before eventually the signal gets to the so-called ganglion cells. And those ganglion cells are the nerve cells that form the optic nerve. So they have the axons, the cables to the brain. And what that really means is that we can entirely describe a computation, right? So you can imagine you've got a visual stimulus, gets picked up by the array of photoreceptors, a little bit like a pixel array in a camera. Um, But then rather than sending each individual pixel to the brain, what the retina does is it uses the information over time and over space to combine signals from diverse photoreceptors and basically puts them through its network such that in the end, at the level of the ganglion cells, you're not sending pixels to the brain but you're sending pre-processed information, what we would call features, right? So this is maybe a bit abstract, but so a feature is, is the sort of thing you might be thinking of is like an edge. So the brain gets told there is an edge or not and the edge is oriented in this particular way and maybe the edge is moving and maybe the edge is blue. That sort of information would be the, the kind of level of information that the brain gets sent.
2: How is the uh, different elements of viewing a picture or a scene broken down? And process? Are there certain neurons that handle only edge and other ones only movement?
3: That's exactly right. So, this is approximately how we like to think about this process. So, when we're talking about these ganglion cells, we don't really talk about one homogeneous population of neurons, but a fairly heterogeneous population. So, when we talk, for example, in the case of the primate or in, in the human retina, we're thinking there's something in the order of maybe 20, maybe a few more types of these ganglion cells. And each one type exists all over the surface of the retina. So it it the, the idea is it gives complete coverage of the image, but it only informs about one of those features, right? So you might have the type of cell that tells you about an edge that is vertical. And then you might have another type of cell that tells you about an edge that's horizontal. And you might have another type that tells you this is a red or this is a blue stimulus, that sort of thing. So the idea is that you then get these 20 odd parallel representations each quite simple. They get sent to the brain and then the brain basically works backwards and tries to interpret what the image actually was.
2: How much processing happens though at the retina? Can you tell, are you able to observe the neurons or make like an organoid of the retina and see like each layer, if it processes it in a different way and before it goes to the optic nerve?
3: Absolutely. So on on both accounts, so they're, they're a little bit different, those two questions. So on the one, yes, you can absolutely see each individual neuron. Even even smaller, you can look within these neurons, how the different bits of the neuron connect. So this is, this is sort of the one set. You asked about organoids. This is also possible. So an organoid would be the idea that you literally grow this tissue in a dish that allows you to study it in certain ways. That is recently becoming more and more popular in view of, in particular, trying to understand the human retina, because you can imagine it's difficult to get tissue to work with to try to understand it so if you can have an organoid grown from scratch that's of course much better but if i were to jump uh, back to the to the first part of this question so when we look at individual nerve cells this is absolutely the way that we do it so we use diverse forms of microscopy and and also uh, electrical recording so we've got little electrodes that we can stick near or into these neurons and record activity over time and with the kind of tools that are available nowadays, it's possible to not just record one or two of these neurons, which was sort of the beginnings in the 60s and 70s. That's what people were doing, where they laid the foundation of this understanding. But nowadays, what we can do is we can get hundreds, maybe a thousand if we get lucky, depending on how on how the recording situation is. And that is incredibly powerful because that means that you can really you can look at large numbers of these nerve cells see which cell responds when, then manipulate the input, which is just the visual stimulus, right, so you could use a projector, for example, and then really try to understand the intricate computations that occur in these different layers, and then how the retina really gets from having some photoreceptors, which are intrinsically pixels, to this, this feature representation at the level of the ganglion cells.
2: Yeah, how much redundancy is there for a particular feature type and How do you imagine it's all pieced together? What are the steps by which the signal is processed in the beginning?
3: Right. So I guess that's two questions. So on on the redundancy, there is, the idea is that there's Not much redundancy because the tissue needs to be efficient. The system needs to be efficient. The idea is that you don't want to send two times the same information to the brain because then you could have just used one axon. Of course, that is not entirely true because it needs to be sort of error prone. It needs to be error prone, it needs to to have some sort of mechanism to protect it from failing during injury. So there has to be some redundancy and the debate is quite wide reaching as to where exactly that threshold sits in any given species. There's some differences there as well as to how these computations are actually done. So this, this is really a big field of, with a lot of nuances, but there are some principles that really stick out quite nicely. So, for example, as you can imagine, light can either go brighter or darker. So the nervous system, of course, needs to know about both these incidences. However, the way that the photoreceptors are set up in the vertebrate eye is that they only decrease their activity when the light level increases. So we would call them an off cell, right? It responds when the light switches off. So that's really only half of the equation. So what then the nervous system does, or the retina does, at the level one layer down, uh, it uses the so-called bipolar cells. This is the second layer. It takes... Some of those bipolar cells take this off signal from the photoreceptors and they flip it using a specific synaptic mechanism, whereas the other half of the bipolar cells do not do that. So then in the first layer, you go from exclusively off signals to the second layer having both on and off signals. So you basically you split the task of signaling increments and decrements in light into two levels of neurons which exist in parallel. So this might be sort of the, the most basic way of which you can try to understand these processes. Of course, there's now a lot of nuance that sort of adds on top of that. But this is sort of the kind of idea.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives in our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide.
2: How far are the signals processed and are they compared once they, you know, they go through the optic nerves to the brain? Does the brain take the two sets and again, compare them and do error correction or are they like adversarial processing networks? Can you tell what's happening once the two signals join?
3: There's some big differences between species there. So absolutely, the, the signal is almost categorically compared at some point in the brain. If we take our own visual system as an example, it's a fundamental feature of how we use our eyes um so for example you will notice that it's very difficult or let's say impossible to have your two eyes not pointing at the same thing right you're focusing and then always both eyes go there you can't like maybe a chameleon might take like focus on something with one eye and then take the other eye off and start sort of looking around it just doesn't work your your nervous system won't let you do that. So fundamentally, what the two eyes send to the brain is always aiming to look at the same thing and then being processed together. Now, how that happens is is a big field of study. The first layer at which this happens is that, at least uh, in the human situation, some of the information from the right eye goes to the right side of the brain and some of the information from the right eye goes to the left, eye, left side of the brain and vice versa such that you basically, you send information to the same and to the opposite side of the brain. And the idea is that that way, the brain immediately gets both sides. Both both halves of the brain get both eye inputs, which of course makes this comparison very immediate. Now, if you look at something that's much older in terms of the history of life on the planet, for example, if you look at sharks, uh, the idea is that, they don't really do that. They're completely crossing. Many fish do that as well. So the right eye only goes to the left half of the brain and the right and the left eye goes only to the right half of the brain. But then even though when the signal is in the brain, it's still separate, the brain then sends information from one side of the brain to the other side of the brain. So the signal is combined anyway. It's just combined in a different way.
2: What's the, uh, the refresh rate for people versus other animals? And what happens during, let's say, uh, you know, I'm just calling it a refresh, but, you know, my eyes take in information. When do they take in new information and that's siloed or separated from the original information? Or used to reduce the error rate or inform it? How often is there a refresh on what a creature is seeing in a reprocessing or a a refinement?
3: This is a really fascinating question. So the short answer for that is in a human, it's around 60 hertz, so 60 times a second. However, the slightly more complex answer is this varies depending on which bit of the retina we're talking about. So as you may know, we've got a fovea, which is in the middle of the retina, and that provides very high spatial resolution. So the photoreceptors are squished extremely closely together. It's a little bit like taking the pixels in your camera and making them be as small and as close together as you can possibly achieve. And that gives you, of course, the best resolution. The danger with doing that, uh, and that's sort of the basis of our pretty unparalleled ability to to resolve spatial detail. There's very few animals that are better. Some birds are better, but basically we're, we're right up there. The problem with that strategy, however, is that because the pixels become so small and if you want to use that signal cleanly you kind of have to read it out just from that one pixel you have to send basically that one pixel to the brain so that kind of contradicts what i said in the beginning that you don't send the pixels to the brain you send features to the brain so specifically for the fovea that's not quite true you do actually send the pixels but then you're running into problems with noise because the smaller your sensor area essentially so the smaller your photoreceptor the fewer photons in space you can collect and therefore your signal is going to be much more noisy and the the refresh rate, so the temporal frequency at which you can use a signal, is fundamentally limited by how noisy it is. If a signal is very noisy, you cannot read it out fast because you need to basically wait a certain amount of time before you can average out the noise. So the consequence of all that detail is that in the fovea, our refresh rate is much slower than it is, for example, in the periphery, where we don't do that single pixel sending strategy. So you might in the periphery reach something like 70 to 80 Hertz. In the fovea, you might reach maybe just 50 Hertz. Um, And this is actually quite Mm -hmm. fascinating. So for example, if you're looking at a screen, which will flicker with a certain rate, the screen is of course designed with the human visual system in mind. So it flickers just fast enough for us to not be able to see it with our central vision. So with our fovea and sort of the bit of the eye that's just around it. However, if you look at an old TV screen, which was literally packed exactly at that edge of what we can do using the side of your eye. So basically looking at it from the periphery, you would see it flicker, right? Because that bit of the eye is fast enough, just about fast enough that you can see it. It doesn't really work anymore with modern TVs or screens because they, they've made them fast enough. So that doesn't work
0: anymore. If you like this podcast, Please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: What's the optimal what's the optimal refresh rate for a screen for someone to look at? Or can you modulate different elements of the picture to allow people to see it even more clearly somehow?
3: Well the strategy that, that engineers have now used is to basically go so fast that it doesn't matter which bit of the you use, which technologically is now becoming routinely possible. So they uh, of course there is such a you could imagine a situation where there's some sort of system that tracks your eyes from point of view of the screen and works out where on the screen you're looking, makes that bit of the screen a bit slower for some sort of purpose that I can't really think of right now, and then make the rest of the screen faster so that you don't see the flicker. But that seems really complicated compared to the solution of just making it fast enough so that no matter how you look at it, it's always going to be flicker-free as far as you're concerned.
2: But what about if I'm just looking out, out the window? You know, what kind of, have people studied what it's just like to look, you know, versus look at a screen? Like, uh, I don't know, how fast do things change? How do we process, you know, natural visual signals of things we're looking at versus a screen? What's the difference?
3: The screen is the artificial situation, of course, right? So if we're looking at natural, well, at anything, basically, in the world that isn't flickering at a specific rate on purpose, it's basically a continuous physical phenomenon that we are observing with our limited a frequency refresh rate, right? So for example, if a bird flies by, depending on the speed of the bird, you're going to get a few impressions of it. And if you want to see the bird better, uh, well, you need to slow down the bird. So there's some fundamental limits there. Whereas on the screen, this flicker problem really only arises... well. It it arose when when engineers first built computer screens or well, TV screens at the time, actually. And that problem has essentially been overcome. It's just it's just a fun little demonstration that you can give yourself if you have an old screen somewhere.
2: OK, so what kind of um, testing do you do to you know figure out the, the nuances of vision? What kind of experiments have you done? What have you figured
3: out? So we've done quite a few experiments over the years, maybe one that's Quite fun to point out. So when I was talking about the ganglion cells in the beginning, the ones that send the different features to the brain, we, some some years ago, we looked in the mouse retina, specifically in mouse, because that is, is one system where a lot of people have contributed knowledge over the years. So it's perhaps the most, the most well understood at the moment. We, we basically, we wanted to know how many of these feature channels are there in the mouse. And what we did there is we used a, a form of microscopy that allows you to visualize each Cell in a layer, many cells in parallel, optically, while stimulating the the flattened out tissue in a in a in a microscopy chamber. So basically, what you can you can imagine, you've got sort of this this array, this this layer of tissue is just flattened out. You project patterns of light onto it from one side, and then you record the activity of all of the neurons of of the entire population of these ganglion cells in one patch of the eye. And the the question was, um, how many different representations? can be found, which is sort of equivalent to asking how many types of these ganglion cells exist. And well, to cut a long story short, we found it's about 40 or maybe slightly more in a mouse, which at the time was was quite a high estimate. We didn't think it would be that many. We thought it would be around 20, right? So it kind of, it sort of doubles the, the level of complexity that we, we now think about how to deal with it. What is quite fascinating about that is that this kind of approach that we've used at the time it's becoming more routinely doable in different species and it's getting complemented by other approaches you can use genetic approaches to sort of address the same question or you can use um, anatomical approaches and that's all been done and if you do this in the mouse you always end up in this number of 40 to 50 ish but now, as I said in the beginning, in the primate, if you do it, you end up with something like 20-ish. So that tells me that there's something fundamentally different about how the primate talks to the brain, the primate eye talks to the brain, and how the mouse eye talks to the brain. The mouse sends more diverse information, right? So the strategy has changed. And I think where it becomes really interesting, and we don't have the numbers yet, but we can, we can guess, is when you look the other way around uh, in the phylogenetic tree. So if we ask, okay, so what about in a bird? What about in a fish? What about in a shark? What what are the sort of numbers of cells of, of what what's the diversity that we're that we're seeing? And while these techniques haven't been quite used in as much detail on these non-Mammalian species yet, what's quite clear is that the birds, if anything, is more like the mouse, it's not like the human. So the numbers are much more mouse-like, high. What, possibly... what does
2: that mean? They're they're more mouse-like. Like I would, I would think that you'd have receptors for motion, others for colour others for maybe position, et cetera. So I would think the mix of receptors would be different in a mouse and a bird and a person, but not just missing. I would think that they would prefer to see certain elements that we don't see. Maybe maybe they see it in more clarity. I don't know.
3: That's exactly right. So this is sort of the line of thinking that people are currently following. So there must be elements in in the sort of thing that a bird is trying to pick out from the visual world or the mouse or the primate that are different or the strategy of seeing the same thing might be different. So, one nice example there is the detection of motion. I was saying in the beginning, you might have a level, a set of ganglion cells that is tuned to respond when a stimulus moves in one direction, but not to respond when it moves in uh, the opposite direction. So, we call these cells direction selective ganglion cells, kind of self explanatory why. And specifically in the mouse, They have been studied quite heavily, and there's quite a few different types of them. There's one that points left, there's one that points right, one that points up, one that points down. So they give give you basically cardinal directions. So there's four populations of these cells. There's actually more, but there's four four of those of one type, and they, they basically form a cross, right? Using the information from those four, you can tell exactly which direction the stimulus is going. Now, with all that excitement, people have, of course, then tried to find them in a primate, including in humans. And it's not quite so clear if they're there, right? So it kind of looks like the primate has given up on that particular property of the retina, possibly because it doesn't need it, possibly because our brain can compute these things just fine, and therefore we don't need the retinal representation, or possibly for other reasons. Possibly it has something to do with how we move our eyes compared to how a mouse moves its eyes. This is very hotly debated right now, So, but that, that could be... Go part way to explaining why the mouse has so many more, right? If the mouse has this retinal strategy of trying to understand direction of motion and the primate has a brain strategy, then maybe the primate doesn't need some of those cells that the mouse needs. Yeah? There's some
2: fast processing happening at the eyeball and then some of it that can wait a few milliseconds probably happens in the brain, right?
3: That may be so, but If you think about how long the optic nerve is in the human, it's actually quite long. It's a few centimeters long before it gets to the the thalamus where it first makes contacts with central neurons. And then only... Only after that relay, it even gets to the cortex, the bit where we think that computation could be performed. So the problem with that is that the distance can be fairly directly translated into a time delay, right? The signal doesn't travel up and down nerve cells instantaneously. It takes a few milliseconds. So the longer you wait before you compute such time-critical information... The more information you stand to lose, right? You, you you sort of you might introduce noise into the system. You might introduce uncertainty. So from a from an efficiency point of view, it doesn't seem like the best strategy to do it in the brain. Yet that is apparently how we do it. So so there's absolutely some unsolved questions there. What I was going to say is when I now say that the birds have probably in the order of 40 or perhaps even more depending on the species so like like a mouse these gamut cells then and and we say that this direction selectivity is one of the aspects that explains why the mouse needs so many. then that would presuppose that the bird probably has these cells however in what we've been doing recently in the lab and this is not yet published but this is sort of the the first insight it looks like the birds may not have them so the birds might in that way, be human-like in the sense that they don't have them, but might be mouse-like in the sense that they have many different channels, many, many different of these ganglion cells. And of course, that, if that's correct, and, you know, in in time we will know, that would then presuppose that then the bird is presumably computing something else, maybe something that we haven't thought of yet, or maybe something that we didn't think, maybe compute something in, in more detail compared to the mouse or
2: the primate. (laughs) Are you able to read the signals without disturbing them? You know, let's say in a mouse, are you able to instrument, you know, some of the cells in their retina and then read out the signals that are coming, maybe even pass them to another mouse?
3: You could certainly pick up the signal in one mouse and pass them to another mouse. However, you would not know which signal to send where in the second mouse. So this is sort of the fundamental problem of retinal prosthesis so that this is this is a big field of course in in medicine where where people are trying to basically fix a broken retina in a human right so so if you go blind there's normally what happens is not the entire tissue is dead or degenerated normally it's certain bits of the tissue that are that are broken most of the time the photoreceptors for, for energetic reasons, they're just very fragile when you, lose, when you don't have enough oxygen, for example. And then what you're left with is a presumably more or less working network without the input. So then the, the idea is that, OK, great, maybe we can then put the input back in that retina and everything will be fine. And that's one approach that's being being, being pursued with, with uh, some success. But the other approach, of course, is you can say, well, I could maybe just go straight to the ganglion cells and I can stimulate the ganglion cells. Maybe driven by some sort of camera that transduces the information from the camera into some chip. And then you go into the Ganglion cells and you zap all these Ganglion cells and recreate the visual code. And the problem is, even though you could probably do some of those steps technologically with varying levels of success, it's really hard to know which signal you would have to stick into which gang itself. And, and that's sort of the the, the fundamental limit, one of the funda- lima- fundamental limitations in this field. And, and people are working very hard to try to address this. But this is well, you can see. It's, it's a non-trivial task.
2: But what if you have two instrumented mice and one's in the darkness and its cage? and one's in a regular cage looking around and you pass information from the one in the light cage to the dark cage, just right to the you know, to the retina cells, not to the ganglion, just dump it all in there. Can that be done? Has it been done? What happened?
3: You wouldn't be able to comfortably record from the retina of a mouse that's moving around for the very simple reason that the eye moves. So it'd be really difficult technologically to get the signals. So when I say we get the signals from the retinal cells, the way you do it is that you you work on the on the retinal tissue itself you keep it alive in a dish but the the, the mouse is no longer there so getting that signal in a life-moving mouse would be a, a major technological challenge that I don't think has been solved yet. But what you could do is you could try to, to get signals from the brain. The reason that that's easier is because the brain doesn't move relative to the animal, right? The brain is static relative to the skull, more or less. And that's the sort of, I mean, famously, Elon Musk is trying to do that sort of thing in humans, right? But of course, in, in, in mice, it can be done just as well, and it has been done. They can record large numbers of neurons in the brain of a mouse. You can send them into a computer, and then once... Send a computer, you can, well, you can do whatever you want with it. You could absolutely send them to another mouse's brain. You again run into the same problem that just because you send a signal, you wouldn't know which signal to send where, let alone have the technological ability to purposefully target each signal to a specific set of neurons. That would be the technology is just not there yet.
2: Well, what but if you, know, you, if can you can can do dump it all in? What if you yeah, dump it all exactly. in? Could you you could can dump it to the optic nerve right before it gets to the brain somehow.
3: You could probably somehow dump it into your optic nerve. It would be, again, but quite, quite tricky. I think the more, the more fun experiment, which on the one hand sounds really amazing, on the other hand, it's kind of trivial. What you can do is you can send information into the cortex of an animal randomly, basically, as you say, dump it all in. So some of the neurons in the cortex will then pick up that information, some won't. And because cortex is so incredibly clever and plastic, it'll learn to use the signals. Absolutely not in the way that the experimenter intends, but the cortex will form a representation of the signal that you're dumping into it. So you could conceivably dump the information into the cortex and have the animal learn that this new input, which is not natural, but somehow still there, is meaningful and make the animal do something. So that has, for example, been done with with rats where they have put an infrared receiver on the rat and put it, send that signal, dump that signal, whether or not the infrared receiver is active or not, into the cortex. And then the rat can see infrared in the sense that the rat knows when that signal is on. But it's not really seeing infrared then, right? It's just the rat just knows that it's, its brain has been zapped. It's a little bit more crude than it perhaps sounds uh, at first sight. But nevertheless, I mean, this is the sort of technologies that, that are coming along and they're getting more sophisticated. So who knows what's going to be possible in, in the future.
2: Well, what if you had a, a, a camera looking at a certain scene in the cage and then you also instrumented the rat or at least the retinal tissue and just added the camera signal in, even though it's a totally like foreign type signal? Has anyone tried that? Does the brain understand that? Or instead of, yeah, has that been done?
3: I'm trying to think. Certainly what's been done with these retinal prostheses is, is again, is a, a camera-like signal. So what you do is you take a camera, you mount it in front of a pair of glasses that you give to a human, and that camera connects to basically what is a screen on the other side, of the, on the back of the glasses, so the, big, the bit of the glasses that actually faces the eyes. And that then stimulates the... Whatever is left in the retina, and this would be a blind patient with a degenerated retina, it stimulates whatever is left there with very intense light of just the right color. And this technology can couple with another technology that's called optogenetics. So the idea there is that you have proteins that are specifically engineered to respond to the presence of light and do something to a nerve cell. So when you stick that protein, that set of protein into a specific nerve cell, and then you shine light at it, uh, that nerve cell becomes active. So that's a technology that's been around for a few years. It's been quite revolutionary for doing experiments. But of course, people are now also trying to use the same thing to get sight back into a degenerated retina. So if you combine those two technologies, so for example, use a gene therapy technique to get, that, to get those proteins into the eye and then you use a pair of glasses that has a camera on the front a screen on the back to basically to zap those those proteins, which are now in the eye. Then, yes, you can get a signal to a brain in a human. That's been actually published very recently, I think a couple of, of weeks ago in, in Nature Medicine. And yet the human has some sort of sense of light and of I'm not sure it's fair to call it vision because it's absolutely not that, you know, that you can interact with the world in any way that would be considered sight. But, you know, you might not run into a wall. You might have a chance of picking up an object from a table with some, um, if the contrast is good. So these, these technologies really are coming along. It's just, it's going to be some years before they're actually usable to a degree where, where you sort of meaningfully restore quality of life that, in, in the way that you might actually want.
2: Are you able to get uh, cadaver eyeballs? You know, do, I know people donate organs sometimes, but are you able to set up a situation where you, you know, you get eyeballs from uh, people that have passed away? I was imagining a a big jar of like human eyeballs on your desk. That would (laughs) be gross. It'd be freaky.
3: So uh, we in the lab don't don't really study humans, but absolutely, you you could definitely get eyeballs from people who donate their their bodies. I mean, you wouldn't stick them in the jar just for the fun of it, right? That's not ethical use of the eyeballs. You you could study them. I mean, there's there's a lot of value in studying uh, the eye after it dies. So you can see, you can watch the process of how it degenerates, or you can try to understand its structure before it degenerates, or you can do you know, in a very quick you can do experiments much like you would do in a mouse you can do that in a human eye it works too you just need to get the eye literally minutes after the patient has given up the eye that's of course a very rare situation to be really feasible what we're talking there is patients who are taken off life support and then with consent um, the eye can be used or certain times of certain tests of cancer of the eye or of the surrounding tissues the patient may opt to take the eye out And then, of course, if you've got an agreement with the surgeon in the hospital, you might be able to get that tissue. So there are ways to get hold of that tissue. And there have been studies with actually quite a lot of success looking at the principles of the human retina, how that works. And I guess the big lesson that we have from that is that it is quite similar to non-human primates, where more studies have been done, of course, but it's not identical. And I guess the, the lesson there is that, directly translating research from one animal to the next always has limitations. And I guess these studies are pointing out some of them. But of course, there's, there's a lot of overlap. And really, what many of these human studies, I mean, many of, there's not that many, but some of these human studies have told us is that by and large, what we've learned from certain species of primate seems to also be the case in the human. and That's quite reassuring, because that means that we can we really get getting a handle not just on how in principle the system works, but actually how it works in our eyes.
2: Well, yeah. What do you think is going to be possible to figure out over the next year or two and what's going to take many, many years, in your opinion, to figure out?
3: The sort of time frame of one or two years, the progress is, is going to be quite, it, you know, progress is incremental. So of course, you never know when the big next discovery is going to be announced. It happens from time to time. And then you're surprised. And you deal with the new state of knowledge. So that, of course, can happen many times that something becomes around that you just didn't expect. In the longer term future, I think it's going to be from an understanding perspective. So without really any direct application, just understanding how the system works. I think we're getting quite rapidly towards a stage where, not where we've understood the system, it's a really complex system, but where we've got some sort of level of understanding that suffices to recreate key aspects of it in the computer, we can do that to some extent already, but the problem with these computer models is that they tend to fail whenever you challenge them with stimuli that they haven't seen before. Which, of course, is not something that happens with our eyes. Right when we see stimulus that we haven't seen before, well, we just see it, we interpret it. It means something, and the computer models they can't deal with that yet. But I think the computer models will be able to deal with this sort of thing within the time frame of not one or two years, but maybe one or two decades. Who knows? Maybe ask me in two decades if that happens. Uh,
2: has anyone studied like uh, creatures with compound eyes, like a fly? And see how the other processing is different?
3: Yes, there's a large number of people that study that. And actually, the understanding of what happens in compound eyes is at least as good as what we have in in the vertebrate eye, um, if not better. And that is because what specifically for compound eyes, you've got model species that are extremely amenable to experimental analysis. The key one that I would point out is maybe Drosophila melanogaster, so the fruit fly. The reason that that works so well is because we've got exquisite genetic access. You can basically target genetically any population of neuron in that fly we've got a complete connectome connectome means we've got a complete wiring diagram of the brain including the eye in these flies so the 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 state of the knowledge in these kind of systems is amazing and this is really something that's been coming along in very very recent years so from an understanding point of view these particular compound eyes certainly of the fly we know more than we know in pretty much any other complex eye. They work in a very conceptually similar way to how our our own eyes work. So they also represent information in parallel. They also have multiple processing layers. For example, these direction selective neurons, they have their own version of those. So all of these kind of conceptual features that are described for, say, the mouse uh, retina, they are present in the flight the nuanced circuit implementation of how they achieved are not always identical. Of course, they cannot be right. It's a different entirely different design of an eye, but really what's fascinating about that is if you think about the evolutionary perspective, right? So the last common ancestor between a fly and us is quite a long time ago in evolutionary time. And in fact, that ancestor had no eye, right? This We're talking about creatures, uh, his, prehistoric creatures, which they're older than any vertebrate, so anything with a backbone, these, these image-forming eyes, they were basically not around yet. So a fly, the lineage that eventually led to a fly, and the lineage that eventually led to the mouse and the primate and the squirrel and all of us, is entirely independent in terms of how the eye evolved, which is, in, in, in the one scenario, you get this compound eye, which is all one way around, and then in the other scenario, you get this, what we call the camera eye or lens eye, so this is our own eye, it's also sometimes called a simple eye because it's got a single single lens as opposed to the compound eye. They look completely different. But then if you look into the neurons, how they connect, how they work, how they how the circuit logic is set up, is remarkably similar. And really what that means is that there's something about the nature of light and the nature of animals behaving around light, trying to understand it, that is so fundamental that the nervous system has basically invented the same set of, the same bag of tricks twice. Once for the fly lineage and once for the mouse lineage. And that really is quite fascinating, I think, because it tells us something about how nervous systems evolve, not just how they work.
2: Why do you think most creatures have two eyes and not three or four or five?
3: Many species have more than two eyes. It's just we don't oh. tend to. So the... I mean, you're completely right. Most species have two eyes, right? But there are many species that have more. So the, the famous one is the sp- uh, diverse species of spiders. We usually talk of eight eyes. So you've got... Two big front-facing ones, two side front-facing ones, and then another uh, two pairs on the back. The obvious advantage for the spider is that it can see in all directions. That's a, this fairly obvious one. And what's quite fascinating there is this is now specific for a, a genus of spider called a jumping spider. They kind of use their eyes a little bit like in a mouse, you might use the ganglion cells, right? So you have one high-resolution eye that's for one task. And then you've got the side eyes, which are for motion. Right? So they've kind of put the motion and the high-resolution thing rather than next to each other in one eye. They've put it in two eyes. So that would be one reason why it's extremely useful for the spider to have multiple eyes. One eye does this, one eye does that, and this has evolved several times in in, in a remarkable number of diverse species. So one one really cool one I think is the is the box jellyfish. Uh, is it is um, uh, you, you find them in Panama, and they they have loads of eyes which are basically dangling off their side in all directions. So they come jellyfish have four-way symmetrical right so they basically everything comes copied in four times and then each of these four blobs of visual organs is multiple eyes one eye looks up one eye looks down and I think there's a third eye looking elsewhere and again each of so so one that look the eye that looks up is looking for the mangroves and the eye that looks down is looking for the ground right so they have different tasks so that's the one side of the story so some of these species actually have more than two eyes but then coming back to, if if we're really talking about the two principal eyes that you see in most species that we sort of traditionally think of when we think about eyes, stereopsis is a very obvious one. So stereopsis is the idea that you use two eyes to look at the same thing. And in, uh, on the one hand, that tell, it, it just gives you more information about that one thing. That's a But I think the bigger point there is it helps you with distance estimation. And this is something that's particularly critical for animals such as us with forward facing eyes, because then the angle that we need to tilt our eye inwards is directly informative uh, to, in order to fixate on an object is directly informative about how that how far that object is away right so in the, so this using two eyes to see something is the best trick that evolution one of the best tricks that evolution has come up with in order to know the distance of an object that you can see using one eye much harder to do so I think that's one of the key reasons why you've got two eyes, and at least two eyes in most species. I think the the question becomes interesting the other way around: why why don't we have many species with just one eye? And basically, the one the species with one eye are the ones that don't do distance estimation well, and they're rare.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Even with the um, you know, with the spider, if you break down the functionality of the eye, you know, some are for motion, some are for this, some are for that. It seems like it's just two distributed eyes in the spider instead of eight you don't really have like eight full eyes. You have like elements of an eye. It just seems like that from your description.
3: Yeah, except then when you actually look at the picture of a spider, it it is eight eyes. So when we say eight eyes, that means four types of eyes, right? Because everything's bilaterally symmetric. So the two frontal facing eyes would maybe be the closest thing to what we traditionally would call an eye. Then the side eyes are sort of extra eyes. And then the back eyes, they're less well understood. And actually, I don't know from the top of my head what they're good for other than looking backwards. But you could imagine that if, I don't know. I don't know if that's the case, but you could imagine it's the same system, right? Again, one motion eye, one detail eye. In a way of having okay. having eyes pointing in different directions, but the other way of looking backwards is to just have an eye that's sticking out of the body so far that it can look in all directions. Fish can do that to some extent, for example.
2: Yeah, I would think too. Like in in creatures that have forward-facing eyes, where the two eyes see the same thing, just slightly different angles. That. A lot of the processing then would happen well, how would you think the processing of the signals would happen in a creature where the two eyes are on the side of its head? so each eye literally sees completely different things and the, you know I guess the brain has to resolve it. Most of the processing would be there. but in a creature where both eyes look the same way, you could probably shift a lot of the processing to the front you know to the to the retina and the early the early parts of the brain wouldn't have to do as much. Or maybe it could just do more complicated
3: things. Yeah, no, absolutely. that's an interesting idea. I don't, I don't know what to what extent that would hold up against experimental scrutiny. But I think what the, the point you raise there about the eye processing in an animal that doesn't overlap its visual field, right? So if you think of something like a rabbit, for example, the rabbit has sideways facing eyes. There's basically no binocular overlap. It's very small in the front. So what we can then presuppose, and I'm not sure this has been done, is that the rabbit in the brain has a representation of left visual space and of right visual space but then if we presuppose that the rabbit is now conscious and it has some sort of appreciation of the world of the visual world and i don't know if it is conscious but maybe it is it would be a synthesized representation of the world right it's it seems it seems unlikely that the rabbit would have a distinct understanding of left and right eye right i think it would just think vision it would just think this is the scene that i see much in the same way that we don't really purposefully distinguish the, the, the sort of the left edge of our visual field and the right edge of our visual field. It's just the field, right? We sort of think of our visual experience as one unified thing. So I guess the job of the brain to some extent is just to to take the signals from one and the other eye and sort of muddle it together in a way that makes it feel continuous.
2: Okay, well, very good. Tom, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go?
3: I guess the easiest is my website. So this is uh, just www.badenlab.org. Www.badenlab,
2: well, very good, Tom. Thanks for coming. It's been a super interesting call. So thank you.
0: For having me.